And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm happy to welcome Stephen Hunter back to the program today. Stephen is the Pulitzer Prize-winning former film critic for the Washington Post and has enjoyed a very successful career writing thrillers, both series and standalones. He's best known for his Bob Lee Swagger series. He was last on the program to discuss the sixth entry into the series, I Sniper. Today, we'll be talking about book number 11, Game of Snipers, which is published by G.P. Putnam's Sons. And a note, we recorded the interview in Stephen's hotel room in Memphis, so the audio is a bit different than normal. Well, Steve, the book starts off with a brief scene of a man named Paul, and he's going to have one of the worst days he's ever had. I'm not sure where that came from. It was a late addition to the book. You know, you want to start these things quickly and grab the reader's interest. It's like writing a news story. You've got to have a good lead. And I thought that that worked pretty well. And I will tell you, though, that it was not without some controversy. And I had a fight with editorial, and ultimately I won. But it was a close-run battle. He wanted a dream sequence in which the hero and the antagonist are shown to have the same dream. From that, we would infer that they were very much the same man. They were very much of equal skill sets. He thought that would be a better start. I want to have action. You know, I want to have something happen. I know what my strengths and weaknesses are. And I thought that scene had a particular existential horror to it. I mean, I think that's a deep, dark, terrifying dream that many people have in some form or another to find themselves helpless. Their world is coming to an end in a bad way. I didn't win all the fights, but I did win that one. I think that was a stronger way to do it. Thank you very much. I appreciate hearing that. Because that existential horror of not knowing what is coming for you. Exactly. That's exactly correct. We get into the Bob Lee part pretty quickly, and he has moved up to Idaho. Why has he bought a spread up in Idaho? Oh, you know, you're asking me questions about Bob Lee's past. And as it turns out, I'm not the world's greatest expert on (laughs) Bob's past. As I recall, he sort of ended up in Idaho by default. And he was not a cowboy, but he had a facility for horses, and he found that he enjoyed being around the horses. And he got into the barn business, the layup barn business. My daughter is an equestrian, so she explained what a layup barn was to me. And that I, I like that as a place for a retired sniper to go, where he could be with the animals all day long and, and feel that he was contributing something and watch them get stronger and better Believe me, I know nothing about... The only thing I can do with regard to horses is pay for them. My daughter has spent thousands of my dollars on horses, and that just seemed to me a good place for him. And it lets people come to him. He's not hustling business. He's not trying to make a living. He's sort of just trying to live a life out, and things keep happening. A guest has shown up uninvited to his ranch, and that's not something he likes. No, he doesn't like it. He's not exactly a miser. I don't want to make him a total exile from society, but like many older men, he prefers the company of people who get him and who he gets. He's not looking for new friends. He's looking for people who are in his peer group, and it's through them that he will live. For that reason, he is, I can't say... He hasn't abandoned society. He hasn't exiled himself, but he's just made himself somewhat inaccessible. If you want to find him, you've got to really want to find him. You're not just going to bump into him. 
And his peer group is very small, yeah. world-class shooters. Yes, yeah, it is a very small group. About how many people do you think are oh, of his level around the world right now? Probably fewer than... I think sniping is a growth industry because every small-town police station in America now has a designated sniper and a $6,000 sniper rifle in the um, arms safe. However, being a sniper is different than being a shooter of Bob's level of attainment. Just as there's a very small number of men who can hit 300 in a major league for 10 years, there's a very few number of men who can do what he can do. And he's worked very hard to hone to improve, just to get to that level and to stay at that level. I mean, it is him, and that's how he expresses himself. That's how, that's the swagger part of swagger. He may be a bit old-fashioned, but he does keep up with the technology. He keeps up with the technology. He enjoys the world. He finds it very stimulating. He enjoys the people in it. You know, the guns have been good to him. He's had a very fulfilling life, despite the many wounds and the many extremely close scrapes. And he's not going to abandon that world. He knows where he'll be comfortable and that he belongs there. Do you enjoy keeping up with the research as well? Uh, I'm a hopeless, inveterate gun magazine reader. I remember years ago, I was on a panel with my good friend, he wasn't my good friend then, Jim Grady, who wrote Six Days of the Condor, and the New York Times book critic, Christopher Lehman Haupt. Each of us was asked what the latest book we'd read, and Jim said something like Haiku by Basho, and uh, Lehman Haupt said, uh, I reread one of Anthony Trollope's great novels, and I said, the October issue of Guns and Ammo. And that got a great laugh from the New York audience. But those two guys were probably lying. I was telling the truth. <laughs> I do like to keep up with what's going on in it. I just find it fascinating. And the knowledge and the information somehow sticks in my brain. And I think that's because it stimulates my imagination so powerfully. I know very little about guns, but what is like a recent technology that's been amazing? Well, the, most of it is in new calibers, which have turned out to be much more accurate than the old calibers. People who know will understand what I'm talking about. The standard American sniper round was a 308 caliber Winchester. Much more efficient and accurate and less recoiling, but as powerful round called the 6.5 Creedmoor is been adapted by the armed forces for certain applications and I believe will eventually take over as the primary sniper round of the armed forces. And when that happens, it'll also happen to all the police departments because they follow, you know, their bigger brothers in the military. In other aspects, optical systems, computer-driven solutions to optical problems, that has gone very high tech. It's too high tech for me. And although this book is built around someone prepping for a mile long shot, I could only sort of try and make you think it's accurate without getting into the arcana and the minutia of it, which is very, very complex. And there's even an app for that. Yes, exactly. There is. Oh, yes. In fact, guns were made for computers and vice versa. And the two in tandem have grown into a substantial and very creative industry. Now, back to this uninvited guest who has shown up at Swagger's Ranch. Her name is Janet McDowell. And she's a very determined woman. She is a character that everybody has responded very positively to. She is 
a war mother. Her son was killed by a sniper in Fallujah in 03, and she has decided to find out who did it. And what she has learned is he wasn't killed by an Iranian or a, an Iraqi soldier, which would make him a casualty war, but he was killed by a jihadi mercenary. And that seems to her to be wrong. And she wants justice slash revenge. And she's spent the last 15 years literally risking her life on a daily basis and undergoing all sorts of terrible ordeals to find out who the guy was. And she's finally found out who the guy was, and she wants Bob to go kill him. Well, Bob's not an assassin. He doesn't kill people for money. And he tells her that. He says, the best thing for you to do is, I'll do this for you, is go to an intelligence agency, and if they find this guy actionable, they will mount an operation to deal with him, whatever that may mean. Uh, and so he goes to Mossad because he doesn't trust CIA much anymore. And that's what starts the ball rolling. And we end up in this manhunt across America. She's traveled to the region many times, been assaulted in many different ways, has learned the shooting game, and has even converted to Islam. Yes, she is, she is uh, more than a method actor. She's a method person. She has become what she needs to become in order to solve this case. And to me, what was so much fun was she's really made some intelligence breakthroughs that the professionals couldn't. She has just, by dint of courage and her obsession, her giving it her entire life, she's made some breakthroughs that lead to another step. But in the American intelligence community, she's essentially on the crank list. She is on the crank list. She can't fly any place. She's afraid she's got FBI guys snooping through her garbage, and she's in horrible debt because to finance all this, in the movies and in most books, that's never addressed. But the truth is, this stuff is very expensive. And for her, a woman of middle-class means, she's had to go into, you know, incredible debt in order to... I mean, this to me, these were all signs of someone who cared so desperately and for whom it had obviously become her whole life. And I found that a compelling figure to write about. Now the man she's in pursuit of is Juba the Sniper. Yeah. And there is a real-world antecedent for him. Yes, there is. He probably didn't exist. He was a propaganda creation by, you know, the various Middle Eastern governments and entities that were opposed to us. They put together several videos when we were in, you know, 203 about the evils of, uh, you know, the success of Juba the Sniper. So what I try to imagine is, even if he didn't exist, Someone suggested him, and I tried to imagine who would that guy be. He wasn't born Juba the Sniper, but somehow he did so well and had such a gift for it, not only for the shooting, but for understanding it tactically, understanding it logically, and having the courage and the stamina to sit and know that at any moment he could be discovered and end up at the wrong end of a 500-pound bomb. So I tried to create him not as a myth, not as a super villain, but I try to imagine who would he be, what was he like, what formed him, what were his talents, what were his weaknesses, is there anything, I wanted him real as opposed to someone like, I mean, I don't like the jackal. 
because he's too inhuman. He's too mysterious. He can do too many things. He never makes a mistake, and he's too cold-blooded. And I wanted this to be a real man who does make mistakes, who gets tired, who has sentimental weaknesses, who is doing like Bob and like anyone in that trade. He's just trying to do his job as well as he can. In your efforts to humanize him, he has a very strange passion that he admires people that grow wheat very well. Yeah, he is from the wheat district in Syria. Wheat is very powerful and meaningful for him. And it's the one thing that takes him out of his professional sniper mentality and takes him back to who he was and where he came from. And the first thing he was good at was at harvesting wheat. He had a skill at it that reflected his superior hand-eye coordination, his superior strength, his superior will. He didn't know where it would lead him, but it was the first time he experienced success in his life, and that remains important to him. His parents just saw him as another worker, essentially. Yes, they just, you know, he was one of 15 kids whose life they thought should be dedicated to wheat and Islam. And Islam is the other main pull of right. his life. He, of course, doesn't see himself as a villain. He sees himself as a hero. And he takes pride in the fact that he is willing to do the hard work of jihad. And he knows that what he does will be considered evil and will be hated. But it's just something that he, you know, I mean, it's, it's a very powerful system psychologically. And he represents what that system can create. I don't want him a superman. I don't want him a psycho. I don't want him drooling blood. I want to show what a gifted, intelligent man can become when he gives himself over to that sort of a system. And we can see all throughout history, there are people who are smart and dedicated who commit atrocities because yes, they believe the wrong things. that is things. exactly true. And that, I hope, that is not lost on readers. It has not been lost on you, but I hope it's not lost on others as well. And that is indeed one of the perplexities of our race, that there are some smart people who convince themselves to do some terrible, terrible things. Now, in a couple of places, you use the spelling Moslem, M-O-S-L-E-M, instead of Muslim, M-U-S-L-I-M. What was the reasoning for that? There was no reason for that. The only thing I can say is that I'm older and there is no Muslim. When I was growing up, there was only Muslim. And without thinking about it, I probably wrote it Muslim some of the time and Muslim the other times. Again, I mean, you have so much to worry about when you're doing these things that there are things you don't worry about. And that is, in my case, happens to be one of them. He went and consulted with the insurgency in Iraq. He trained many snipers, and that gives a nod to your multiple snipers having the Juba identity yeah. in, in the real world. Again, that's how I saw the original character. That, that's who I inferred that the antecedent of Juba, the propaganda creation, would have been a sergeant. You know, not an evil, but a guy, a technician, a guy who had given himself over to the incredibly arcane art of the rifle and had thought about it really rigorously. As much as he believed in Islam, he also knew that Muhammad wouldn't be pulling the trigger. He would be pulling it, and to do that, he had to have read the wind and the atmosphere and the light, and he knew that there were technical requirements that had to be mastered. But his perfectionism led to the downfall of the sniper program in Iraq because he was so narrowly locked into That's perfection. That's exactly right, yeah. Because he became predictable. The people that worked for him became yeah. predictable. 
That's exactly right. What is the Black Cube? It's Mossad headquarters. It's a very strange building. I will confess I have not seen it, but it is eight-story glass building, and it is visible for miles around, and it is the Institute's institute, and that's where all the Israeli stuff takes place. I had fun imagining what it was like on the inside. You know, I mean, obviously, intelligence offices all look like the same inside, but this one, it has such a striking exterior. Again, it's something that sort of provoked my imagination. I thank them for coming up with such a charismatic design. That was very thoughtful to the thriller writers of the world. <laughs> so Mrs. McDowell's intelligence has fallen on deaf ears in the American community, but the Mossad are very receptive. Yes, and they see him as... They're not in it for vengeance or justice. They're not zealots. They're not fire breathers. They see him, they want him alive, and they see him as an intelligence asset because they know that he carries within his head a lot of keys to a lot of locked doors. And they work with Bob because that's their end game. That's what they want out of the deal. They don't particularly want to send a cyber to kill him unless nothing else is possible. They want to sit him down over a cup of hot tea and have some and see if they can't get his stories, see who he's linked to. He will undoubtedly, if so captured, he will undoubtedly lead to a lot of other successes. And that's the way that business works. I mean, the whole assassination as tradecraft is really very rare in that business. That You know, with terrorists, yes, but spy to spy, they're not too interested in killing each other. They're much more interested in figuring out what the other guy knows. That's what they're paid to do. That's how I characterize them as being professional. And in their operations with the Mossad, they figure out that he's got a big job coming up. Yes, they stage a raid. Bob manages to go along on it. They recover a piece of data, and that suggests that he's come to the United States. And there's some other disturbing clues, and among them are that he's been prepping a shot. And what that means is he's been trying to find a rifle and the right ammunition to make an extremely long shot, over a mile. Now, that sounds fantastic. It's really not. Mile-long shots have been hit by snipers quite a few times as part of the technical advances that we mentioned earlier. And it's now possible to do that on skill, not luck, though it takes a great deal of homework. It takes a great deal of R&D, takes computer assistance. It takes, you know, everything comes into play. But most of all, it takes a true master shooter. And they think this guy is capable of doing that. Suddenly, this seems like a really meaningful threat level. And so Bob is recruited as an FBI contractee to help decipher and read the clues and try and intercept this guy. And also coming back to American with him as a Mossad agent, Gershon Gold. Simon Schuster, they said to me, you've got to get a Mossad agent into your books. They love Mossad agents. <laughs> so he's actually based on a very good friend of mine who's been an enormous help to me in the books. And so it was great fun to come back to him. Because he's not exactly a field guy, no, is he? No, he's not. No, no. But he is more personable than the, his colleague Cohen. Yes, that's true. He's actually for personality. Do you remember the Israeli diplomat Abba Iban? And he no, was, well, 
the thing about him was he was the most articulate, empathetic, and understanding man that ever lived. Whenever he was interviewed, you just you wanted him to be your dad. And that's what I sort of tried to make Gershon. I, I had not my friend Gary in mind, but Abba Ebon in mind and his sort of people skills. You know, he never would get mad. He'd never lose his cool. You know, you could never see him breathing hard. He'd never speak heavily. He just was incredibly articulate and intelligent and smart about who he was talking to. He had superb media skills, and I, I, I appreciated that. How often do you fall short of his example? Oh, <laughs> I live short of his example. <laughs> now, his colleague Cohen... He was such a pill, and I loved him for it. I had fun with him. I had fun with them ragging on each other, and I wanted to make the exchanges slightly comic, and most of all, I wanted to make them entertaining. I didn't want dull bureaucrats sitting discussing issues in dull bureaucrat English or dull bureaucrat Hebrew. I wanted vaudeville. I wanted one-liners and quips, and I wanted wit and energy. That was the goal. You know, it's up to readers to determine whether or not I did, but it was just fun. One of the things I have to do is make it fun for myself. Otherwise, I, I lose my way. Juba finds his way to Dearborn, Michigan, which has a very large Islamic population. Yes. By no means is the majority of the population sympathetic to his methods. He does find an assistant, Jared Akim. Yes. And he is not exactly a top-level jihadi. No, and I didn't know what would happen to Jared when I started the book. I wanted someone, you know, you need a foil. You need someone to, if you want a character, you have to show him interacting with other characters in order to establish both of them. And both men are improved as characters by their relationship I wanted to surprise readers with my portrait of Juba. I didn't want him, you know, the monster, the screaming demigod, the sociopathic, sadistic maniac. I wanted to show him in relation with this American, essentially an American boy with an American sense of humor. And the two of them were, in each case with each other, fish out of water. And I liked to play their completely opposing world's view off against each other. Again, the point here was to be interesting and provoking and engaging rather than to just put out sheer information. Now, I know very little about the shooting world, but you did strain credulity when you had a millennial reference, Rich Corinthian Leather. Oh, uh, that, uh, I'm trying to remember. It's just some reference to Ricardo Montalban and, and the Corinthian leather. And what, what, was that the Mexican cartel rifle? Maybe so. See, the cartel rifles are historically very, very elaborate. And the rifle that I disguise, which is gold-plated and crusted with jewels, that's common in the cartel world. They have a tradition of very elaborate and, I would say, gaudy, gold-plating, jewel-encrusted, engraved guns and things like that. And so I felt that that was also an expression of who they were, and, and that was fun. So familiar faces also are in the book. FBI agent Nick Memphis is back. Horse is standing in the, the bureau right now. 
I like Nick. I can't imagine writing a book without Nick. His relationship with Bob, well, it's steadily affectionate, but there is a kind of a reverse here in that for the first time, Nick is really in charge. And one of the things this book is about is Nick's leadership skills. You know, Nick is not one of those leaders who gives speeches to the men and pounds the table, but he's very sly in the way he manipulates people and gets them to do what's right. And he keeps his eyes fixed on the goal. I wanted him to be different than people have seen him as Bob's pal, but suddenly he's Bob's supervisor. And that's a really hard relationship to bring off when you've been friends with somebody and suddenly you're in charge with them. And it is testament to his great skill that he is able to do that without blowing the relationship. I mean, the relationship is still very important to him, but he's able to be Bob's boss without the whole thing falling apart and to get the most out of Bob that can be gotten out of Bob. Bob, you know, there's lots of areas of this that he doesn't know anything about, and he has to be integrated into a larger investigative process. And the whole unfolding front of investigation in many other areas as well. I hope that's one of the things that I'm able to convince readers of. And he's very much about process. He doesn't want the intuitive leaps. He wants the evidence to back it up. He doesn't want any confirmation by skewing things. That's exactly right. And that's there may be me lecturing the FBI on how they should do their duty in that. That was one of my definitions of a good leader. Gene Chandler is back as well. I don't like to create new characters when I've got old characters. And it just, to me, it's just fun to bring in people from other books and to sort of stay consistent within this world. And I had fun with her too because, you know, in the Hollywood fashion, she is beautiful, but not in the Hollywood fashion. She's very smart and she knows she's beautiful. She's not incapable of using it, but she also is very serious about her job, and she's also got a good sense of humor about herself and her effect on men. You know, if this were a movie, either Nick or Bob would have an affair for her, but because it's, I'm trying to make it sort of realistic, I just stay away from that and make the relationships platonic and professional. Speaking of keeping it realistic, you've aged Bob in real time over the years. Why did you choose that approach? That, see, that's true. And it is a question not without controversy. I think there are many publishers who would pay me many dollars to do Bob Lee Swagger at 35. I can't even begin to remember what 35 feels like. You know, it's just a blur to me. And I need to be tethered in the actual physical sensations of existence. And unfortunately, my own existence is at age 73. And so Bob is 73, and his aches and pains and inabilities to remember things and occasional clumsiness. This book has something I guarantee you no other thriller has. Bob falls out of a tree. <laughs> You know, Harry Bosch is never going to fall out of a tree. James Bond sure isn't going to fall out of a tree. The Gray Man will never fall out of a tree. John Reese won't fall out of a tree. But because Bob is 73, and like me, one thing we old guys do is we fall a lot. Sad but true. In fact, my forehead now looks like it belongs to a pirate because I've fallen so many times and chopped it open. 
So I have that scene in there because it feels right. You know, it doesn't feel formulaic. It feels like something that would really happen and yet would never make it into the movie. And that's kind of where I want to be. You make it real because when he faces younger men who are stronger and faster, they come out on top. Oh, yes, exactly, exactly, yeah. Now, in your acknowledgments, you talk about location research has lost its luster as well. Well, yeah. I mean, I have always made a fetish of research. I have always gone to places to learn all the details of their reality. Sorry, not this time. You know, so much of it is said. I wanted it set in the real America. I just didn't want to visit the real America. So what that means is there are a lot of small towns, a lot of places that hold no attraction to me that I did not go to and I work from maps and from the internet. And I'm sure that means that the niggling incorrect detail account will be higher and higher. And I'll get emails from people in Greenview, Ohio, who say, no, the Walmart mall is not one mile from the old Sears mall. It's 2.4 miles, you know, and that sort of a thing. I realize it could be its own end. And so I decided that being the case, I wouldn't even start it. I interviewed the actor Bruce Campbell once, and he wrote a novel. Yeah. And I said, how did you do your research? He goes, I didn't do any research. I just made it up. It's fiction. (laughs) Took me a long time to get to that point. I I thought the only thing, though, I could do would be to acknowledge it so people understand, you know, if there are more of those little errors, it's not because aliens kidnapped my brain. It's because I couldn't get off the sofa. (laughs) What are the personality differences between a long-range shooter like Bob Lee Swagger and someone like the gray man, Mark Greeney's court generate, who's a a door kicker? There's a huge difference between tactical and uh, long-range shooting. Long-range shooting is enormously complicated. It has literally hundreds of variables, and you can only account for so many of them. And it takes patience, takes a high IQ, it takes a great deal of commitment takes a fairly large, these days, investment because the rifles that are capable of doing this are quite expensive because they're virtually handmade. The optical equipment, the computer equipment, that's all expensive. And if you spend that much money to get the money's worth, you've got to commit to it and study it and master it. Tactical shooting is much more athletic. It involves hand-eye coordination, strength, agility, and speed, and practice. It's like, and it is, practice as a very competitive sport. In fact, Keanu Reeves, the movie star, has become quite a good tactical shooter for his roles as John Wick. And he does a sport called free gun shooting in which you start with a pistol, you transition to a semi-automatic rifle, and then you finish up on a shotgun. You've gotta be good at all three of them to be competitive. And I gather that he's quite a good athlete. He certainly moves like an athlete. He's very good at that stuff. And that's the kind of thing that, I mean, Bob, I've demonstrated his capacity for that. It's not unusual to find two in the same man because it all relates to sort of the ability to imagine in space the interception of some moving thing. Some people have that talent. Lots of people don't have that talent. But I do try and make it clear the differences between the two kinds. 
And is there any possibility that Shooter is going to have a, a season four on a streaming service? Oh, that's a very good question. I have heard rumors that Netflix may produce it. And they seem to have liked it, and it's done very well on Netflix. But I'm way out of that loop, and I don't, I don't know anything you don't know about it. They treated me like a god until they stopped returning my phone calls. So that's just the Hollywood process. The first season, they actually flew me to the set, and I played a cameo. And the second season, no phone calls. And the third season, not even any emails. So I'm way, way out of that loop. <laughs> and does Bob Lee Swagger have another adventure? I'm him? actually working on a Swagger book now. And one of the ideas of it is that, you know, Swagger has brought up a lot of issues about our culture, our society in this particular age. He stands for antediluvian or, or ancient values. And the question is, do those values have a place? Should they be maligned and destroyed? Or should they be adapted? And I will only say of the new book that this will face those issues straight on. And again, I'm not trying to change minds or win votes. I just want to talk about this stuff directly as opposed to indirectly. Well, Stephen, I want to thank you so much for taking some time out to talk with us today. It's been it's, a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much. You were really well repaired. I prepared, I should say. Maybe you're well repaired too. So. <laughs> Thanks so much. Okay, bye-bye. Stephen Hunter is the author of Game of Snipers, the 11th book in the Bob Lee Swagger series, which is published by G.P. Putnam's Sons. I'm Stephen Uswery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.